Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast. And before we get a great get to a great podcast with John Papea of Gallatin Grip, quick shout out to our friends at Rippling. Rippling is a fantastic startup payroll system. It's super automated. They integrate with your IT stack so you can spin new employees up. Uh, we did a little study at Cruise, and it takes us about three hours and 140 bucks an hour for our IT services firm to spin someone up on their new computer. So you save that every time you hire someone, let alone if someone departs. Uh, but Rippling does payroll, does HR, and again, it integrates in your IT infrastructure. So they are just a great firm to work with. We highly recommend them. Uh, and now we're going to cover a really cool topic, fintech, fintech charters, fintech regulatory, fintech legal with John Popio of Gallatin Group. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. So John and I met because we were kind of going back and forth about the Google and the Apple credit cards and what's happening there. And I, I, I'm a total fintech nerd, so I wanted to cover that. But before we get into that, let's kind of establish John's expertise here. John, maybe retrace your career and, and tell us how it led to starting the Gallatin Group. Sure, absolutely. I started my career at the Federal Reserve back during the financial crisis and moved over to the FDIC. I was traveling the country uh, doing failed bank receiverships. So it's where a bank fails on a Friday night, and then uh, contemporaneous at the time of failure, a new bank acquires assets and liabilities of a failed institution. I did that for a few years, and then Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010. I relocated to Washington, D.C. to work on drafting regulations uh, that would implement the, that law. And what happened was a few years into that, I transitioned to private practice where I worked on bank M&A, and during that time, I first got exposed to fintech. And one of the interesting things about fintech is that you've got a lot of technology firms that are interested in working with and getting access to the financial system. And it was around that time. <laughs> that's where the money that. is kind of thing, right? Be where the money <laughs> yeah, exactly. is. That's why people rob banks. So, yes, they want to get access. Yeah. Sorry, I jumped in there, but keep going. No, it's totally, totally accurate. So for me, a journey started in 2015 when FinTech started approaching me for help with expanding their lending operations in a different state. And that entailed a series of different state licensing applications, uh, which ultimately con- was consummated in uh, bank, char- uh, bank partnership. And that was really the precursor to what would become more significant and evolving area of uh, regulatory practice for me. And since then, obviously, the landscape has changed a great deal. It started, like I said, with fintechs looking at regulatory licensing issues, then worked more closely on bank partnerships and integration, and now expanded to advise investment companies looking at um, opportunities to invest in different technology companies, as well as prospective regulations that may hamper their investment and what might happen in the event of a regulatory enforcement action. That's that's when the feds call you and you're in trouble uh, from the regulatory perspective. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's kind of break this down for the audience. Dodd-Frank is the reason why I know some of this stuff, because at Lighthouse, I was, uh, if any Lighthouse people are listening, thank you so much for this life experience, but I was, I was had to be the chief compliance officer. So I learned a ton about Dodd-Frank learned how lending really works, learned about all the regulatory hurdles you need to jump through. And the United States regulatory environment for lending is really set up for banks. It's it's a bank-centric world and bond offerings, like Wall Street bond offerings, but banks are kind of the main lenders. And then what, like 10 years ago, 
the fintech companies came on the scene, they recognized the internet was going to be huge and you could actually lend people directly, lend to people directly over the internet. And so a lot of different iterations started happening, right? And that's, it sounds like it, that was the point in your career where you got pulled into private practice and started advising these companies. That's exactly right. 2010, as you know, was an interesting time because the CFPB came on the scene and essentially started taking a closer look at a lot of the loans that in, in some ways prompted the financial crisis. And they started picking apart different securitization deals and, and asset structures and looking more carefully at where risks were hidden um, in the banking system itself. And in doing so, more started to more uh, carefully regulate institutions that originated those loans. And that unto itself presented an opportunity for non-bank lenders or lesser regulated institutions or entities like fintechs to really enter the scene and start participating um, and engaging in tra- engaging with traditional borrowers in uh, different ways. And so, like in those days, we we at Lighthouse we did a deal uh, with Zest Finance, which is an early pioneer in that on deck capital of our East Coast office. Uh, did small business lending and lending club popped up, Prosper popped up, tons of these startups, and it became this amazing growth sector for VCs and for entrepreneurs. Because the cost of reaching, especially through Facebook and direct marketing through Google, was actually pretty cheap. And as long as you secured a capital source, you were in pretty good shape. But they also started looking at creative arrangements with banks, right? They started like sniffing out partnerships and how do we cover the whole United States and how do we lend legally across the country? That's exactly right. So as you point out, uh, lenders are subject to a multi-state licensing regime, which entails examinations and regulation by um, different state regulatory authorities and state licensing authorities. That said, however, if, if they engage in a constructive partnership with a bank, they can circumnavigate some of that regulation and also uh, still retain many of the benefits uh, that would be relate- that, that, that would endure as a result of uh, such customer interaction. So, so that was part of the incentive to partner with banks. And that kind of led to the FinTech Charter, or its announcement in 2016. And the FinTech Charter, so when you say partners, back up one second before the FinTech Charter. So I remember there was a bank out of Utah that was like kind of lending its charter to, I think, maybe Prosper and Lending Club so they could lend across the country. But it was a real problem for other lenders because you couldn't like you couldn't charge certain interest rates in certain places or you couldn't even lend in certain states. And is that what happened, like the the lending of a charter, a bank charter? Did that get shut down or did that just evolve into the FinTech, fintech charter conversation? Or, or what happened there? The rent-to-charter model is still really popular. Um, what happened was it, around the time of 2014, there was a case involving a national bank, and this is in the Second Circuit, that had uh, originated a loan as Bank of America and a they did so uh, relying on their powers as a national bank um, and subsequently sold the loan to a third party. Third party sought to rely on the originating institution's powers and authorities under the National Bank Act, as well as law regulations that implement that that would be otherwise subject to OCC supervision jurisdiction. And what happened was ultimately uh, the loan was deemed um, usurious uh, in violation of New York state law. And this case is actually referenced more often than not as the Madden case. You probably heard something, some, some uh, news about that. What happened was that kind of complicated bank fintech uh, relationships within the confines of the Second Circuit and has still presented itself as an issue 
across different partnerships even today. And even as recently as last week, uh, it's still discussed as the OCC and the FDIC issued a proposal on that very issue um, to provide clarity with respect to the firms that they regulate uh, that a loan itself is valid when made. And so the lenders that were using the bank charters or the other originators kind of had, they kind of got stopped in their tracks, right? And so then they, people started talking about the fintech charter. And the fintech charter was kind of, I'm, I'm totally layman's terms, but was going to give these new age fintech companies the benefits of being a bank, but without being a bank. But I have a, I, when that came out, I was like, ah, eh, that's probably not going to work because the banks aren't going to stand for it. And you got to kind of play by the regulatory rules if you're going to get those benefits. And is that is that's what's happening? Is that how it's playing out right now? So what's interesting is, just to kind of give you the quick uh, history there, is like in 2016, you've got the federal banking regulators, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC. They announced a proposal for what would be a special purpose, limited national bank charter. The charter would ideally have reduced regulatory complexity and uncertainty for fintechs, as well as afforded fintechs some federal preemption with respect to state licensing laws, which is kind of the issue that we just touched on with Madden. We've got a national bank here subject to national and federal banking laws, regulations, and then we've got state laws that would could interfere with a loan that was originated by a national bank. And what this would have done is allowed for federal preemption of state licensing laws and regulations, so we don't have to worry as often about the multi-state licensing regime, as well as it would have leveled the playing field for, for banks and fintechs as it would have caused such fintechs that would have applied for the charter and been accepted to actually become directly subject to OCC supervision, regulation, and oversight. So it would have leveled the playing field between the, the banks and the fintechs and kind of viewed as a compromise in the industry. And in 2017, however, there was a lawsuit uh, with the Conference of State Bank Supervisors and New York Department of Financial Services. Um, and that lawsuit was initially dismissed without prejudice. And the lawsuit was uh, initiated once again in 2018. It was renewed by, by both the New York DFS and CSPS because the OCC had announced its intention to start accepting uh, charter applications from fintech. So uh, more recently, what happened was um, this, there, there are two separate lawsuits. One was proceeding in the District of Columbia. The other was proceeding in the Southern District of New York. The District of Columbia lawsuit was once again dismissed, again without prejudice. However, what happened is in the Southern District of New York, uh, the OCC lawsuit was allowed to proceed, and an order was issued that enjoined the OCC from issuing that charter. And so they got blocked, basically. They got blocked. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, so where does it stand now? Like, where do the the late stage or pre IPO fintech companies turn? Are they just going to become banks or get bought by banks, or what's going to happen? So, they had a couple options. They could become full service national banks, meaning full service that they accept deposit and they have a national bank charter or federal savings association charter. Um, and you've seen this this implemented by Vero Money. Um, they've received preliminary approval, and Robinhood recently submitted an application last spring, and that would allow them to become members of the Federal Reserve System as a national bank, and they'd be subject to a single regulatory authority such as the OCC. You've got other players like Square looking at industrial loan company charters, uh, which are charters that are uh, issued to entities typically in Utah that are non-bank commercial entities. What's interesting there is that it's still subject to FDIC insurance, so it entails an application to the FDIC for regulatory approval, but uh, would afford federal preemption um, at some level, as well as allow for full-service banking powers, uh, provided that the ILCs have total assets of 
less than 100 million. But what's, what's curious about the ILC charter is that um, there's no bank holding company treatment for a parent company, which is a huge issue because the Bank Holding Company Act itself is this somewhat restrictive legal uh, or law that, that provides this legal framework that says essentially if you're a holding company to a bank, you can't do a bunch of things that would not otherwise be consistent with banking. You can't be Walmart and have a bank but also run like a giant retail organization. Bingo, you got yeah. it. From that answer, it sounds like people are still kind of searching. There's no de facto path, basically. There's no de facto path, but what you're seeing more now um, than ever before, I see, in my practice, is a lot more partnerships with fintechs and banks, and a lot more banks willing to enter the fray on that front. I love it. And John, you should be like a host of this podcast, because the next thing we wanted to talk about was Apple and Goldman Sachs and their credit card, and Google possibly getting into banking. So that's that's the partnership model, right? That's what you're talking about? That's exactly right. So replay what's going on with Apple and, and Goldman. And also there's some pretty recent controversy there started by one of someone I follow on, the, on uh, Twitter, the, one of the Basecamp founders who also is one of the people who originally built Ruby on Rails or invented Ruby on Rails. Um, which is a software standard that like tons of companies use in the startup world. But maybe explain what's going on with Goldman and Apple and how they're dealing with this. Absolutely. So what's interesting in the Apple case is you, you referenced, uh, I started on Twitter uh, with the founder and inventor of Ruby on Rails, and he cited that his wife received, I think, 20 times less credit than he did, despite having the same FICO store. And then you had Wozniak, Steve, uh, Steve Wozniak, uh, Apple's co-founder, responding on Twitter as well saying that his wife received 10 times less credit. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And that prompted the New York regulator to take a look at uh, whether the practices were essentially violating what's called the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and Regulation B, uh, which essentially, among other things, requires creditors to make credit available to borrowers without uh, regard to the protected class, gender, things like that. Makes perfect sense. So Apple and Goldman partnered on this, but Apple is very, very particular about their brand. And this is this isn't what they expected, right? They weren't expecting to be bashed all over Twitter and maybe even have some lawsuits. Like, how did you know? How did this go wrong? And how do they approach fixing this? I would surmise that they never anticipated this, right? I mean, I, I don't think any technology company partnering with a bank this is kind of like their worst nightmare. They're being looked at right now by the New York regulator, the New York Regulatory Authority, New York DFS. Um, and you've got Elizabeth Warren and uh, Sherrod Brown, I believe, urging the CFPB to actually take a closer look at them at the federal level. And that's one of the things that's complicated for banks, but it's also complicated for fintechs as well, is that you've got this multi-tiered system that and it allows for federal and state regulatory enforcement. Um, one of the things that they ran afoul of, though, it would seem, according to the tweets I've read, it sounds like they're they're asserting that there is a potential Regulation B or Equal Credit Opportunity Act violation that would, you know, essentially Reg B and DECOA require creditors to make credit available to borrowers without regard to protected class status, which would include gender. Among other things, and so they thought so, they were partnering with Goldman. Goldman would take care of all this, but now they're kind of their partner. Maybe didn't work as well as they thought they were going to work. There's that, and I think I think uh, one of the things that I've I've discovered in advising banks and fintechs is they speak two different languages. You've got the technology folks that are speaking um, in one language, and they're strictly focused on integrating the technology 
and how that's going to work. And then you've got the bank compliance and regulatory folks really focused on um, financial laws, regulations, regulatory compliance. Um, and and it, you would think that would be a perfect partnership, but sometimes things get lost in translation. And I've seen that, unfortunately, in, in a few too many partnerships, uh, <laughs> which is where we get called in to, to work on different aspects of uh, remediation. So how, what's what's the way out of this? I mean, they're not going to cancel the Apple credit card, are they? It's like too popular and people are no. using it. Seems like it's a pretty big part of Apple Pay going forward. I think it's a huge part of, um, of their play to move deeper into financial services, for sure. What I think is ultimately going to happen is they're getting looked at more closely by regulators now. They're going to actually have to prove to them that um, their reliance on data, machine learning, whatever it is else that they're using, that they're fully compliant and that they're going to proceed in a way that ensures that they're compliant going forward, not only with federal laws and regulations like ECOA and Reg B, but also with state laws and regulations, as uh, New York State uh, has has more restrictive laws and regulations with respect to consumer protection. That's unbelievable. Now, Google's watching this, and I think it was like almost like the same day that all the stuff came out with Apple and Goldman problem. Google announced they were going to get into like actual banking, right? Like what's what's happening there and do they have some regrets after seeing this whole Apple thing play out? <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, competitively speaking. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nice. <laughs> they may benefit here. Project Cash is interesting, right? I mean, that that to me is Google saying, "Look, we we're feeling the pressure. We're feeling the need to keep pace with our competitors." And they're really looking for ways to keep consumers inside their ecosystem. They want to monetize their transactions with customers while deepening their customer relationships. Um, I think an important point, though, is as you saw, is I guess you know, unlike I would say the Apple uh, Goldman relationship, is that City appears to at least publicly downplay uh, Google's involvement in its new checking account, and I think that happened for a few reasons. One you see that there's more scrutiny with respect to consumer data, privacy, and use of that data. And two, um, the company itself, Google, certainly doesn't want to be regulated as a bank um, because there are a lot of attendant laws and regulations that accompany um, that status. Well, also, like, I don't know if anyone's doing this, but, like, the holy grail for Google is to know when someone clicks on an ad and then actually goes through checkout, right, actually pays money. Because that's like attribution at its core. And so there's got to be something there, too, where that's one. I'm sure they want to be super nice and help all of us consumers have a better checking account experience and all that kind of stuff. But they're probably after attribution at the end of the day. And so so it, it makes sense to me they'd want to do this. I don't know if I would trust you – know, this is just me speaking – trust Google with my data in the same way I would trust Apple. Like – Apple messages privacy first and has built a lot of that stuff into their products where Google's like kind of like, hey, just trust us. Don't do evil and yada, yada, yada. But like, do you really know what's happening? That's exactly the point. I think that's an excellent point. And a lot of customers, I think, would be inclined to agree with you. With the recent hearings, and I think you see Mark Zuckerberg appearing before Congress, I think there's an inherent mistrust uh, around uh, around consumer consumer data and consumer protection. So um, that's something certainly I think any fintech and, and banks alike are going to have to consider in their partnerships going forward. Is that part of like that mistrust? The mistrust, I think Google still has a pretty good brand and people still trust Google, but like Facebook does seem like 
it's veered the other way and, and the cons- American consumer is pretty suspicious. Is that what you think is like hurting the, the Facebook Libra stuff or or is it just the government doesn't want someone else issuing a currency? Because it does feel like it could be competitive or weirdly competitive with other currencies around the world. There are three things I think that's hurting that relationship. One, I think you touched on it, is privacy, consumer protection, consumer data. There's a lot surrounding Facebook and its operational platform, how it works. And then they've got to contend with the election results and the Cambridge Analytica challenges. So so there's a lot there in that regard. Two, I think competitively speaking, uh, Libra is or could be uh, viewed by the government um, as a competitive challenge to fiat-backed currency. What's interesting to me particularly is that you heard some, or I should say cryptocurrencies generally received a great deal of attention in Washington, but but you didn't hear, apart from a few select hearings, you didn't hear the president of the United States sounding off saying that uh, he or she didn't like didn't like cryptocurrency, whereas now it's, it's actually gone so far as to the highest tier of the executive office, and they're sounding off on Twitter saying they don't like, they, they don't like cryptocurrency. And that's really a direct result of Libra. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, well, it's hard. I don't assign a lot of value to what Trump is saying on a day-to-day basis, but like yeah, exactly. the government is, it does feel like that really kind of pushed them a little too far. And then the other big tech company that's been exploring this is Amazon. We were talking about it. What's going on with Amazon and how are they approaching the sector? So what's interesting is Amazon allegedly was exploring a partnership with J.P. Morgan Chase, and they since backed away from that for fear that they were going to be subject to banking laws and regulation. Now, what's interesting is when they were contacted by the press, but Amazon neither confirmed nor denied that. Uh, but there's a concern, certainly, that you know across the board, you've got these big tech companies that are eager to enter banking and financial services, are eager to participate in the sector, but... Uh, they're concerned about uh, being scrutinized for, for their use of consumer data and, and their business practices, and they certainly don't want to be regulated as financial institutions. For sure. And But you know the funny thing about that is Amazon actually has a pretty big lending operation, I believe. It's always been kind of quiet, but like they're doing working capital loans for a lot of the Amazon sellers. And Amazon Pay is certainly. Oh, yeah. I didn't even well. think about that. Yeah. So how do they, I guess they've got, the they're borrowing a charter or doing something like that on the lending side, but the whole deposit aspect of it, they don't want to deal with or be be regulated that way. And and also, when you're looking at handling consumer data um, in the confines of federal uh, banking laws and federal financial laws and regulations, the treatment's certainly different than, than handling it, or I should say slightly different, at least, uh, than handling it in a private capacity or even as a public company. Yep. So, so you think Apple will press on? It makes sense to me. It seems super core. Google will probably uh, do the same and be successful because they own Google Play and can and can kind of further solidify their place. And then Amazon and and Facebook will kind of chart their own course here. I think you're going to see Apple press on. They may or may not be subject to regulatory enforcement action where they would owe money to or, or be subject to a fine by federal regulators and state regulators. I think Google will be interesting to watch that evolve. And then it'll also be more interesting to watch the other participants or the FANG participants in big tech, uh, where they come out on this and, and how they interact with and, and participate in banking and financial services. It's a really fascinating time. I love it. And then thank you for being on the podcast to talk about this stuff. We'll spend just a couple of minutes on cryptocurrency because it's something that everyone loves to talk about, including me. I was joking before we turned the microphones that I think I'm the only person to ever lose money on Bitcoin. 
because I buy it and then get chicken and then sell it and then it goes up and I feel so stupid. But what's what's going on in the cryptocurrency sector right now? So about a month ago now, you've got the chairman of the CFTC uh, who spoke and publicly said that he considers Ether, which is uh, another cryptocurrency, I believe second uh, most popular or widely traded to Bitcoin, uh, to be considered a commodity within the meaning of the Commodities Exchange Act and subject to um, commodity, federal commodities laws and regulations, uh, which is slightly different than other cryptocurrencies that you've got the SEC and other state regulatory authorities looking at uh, more generally. And so does so, that mean that they have like, what advantages does that give them? So the, what's interesting too is that there's a dichotomy between uh, being treated as a commodity versus a security. Um, there's a test that was articulated by the Supreme Court in 1946. Um, and it's a four-prong test that essentially looks at whether a tokenized offering, or you probably heard a little bit about initial coin offerings or ICOs, to see whether or not an offering satisfies the definition of the investment contract. Uh, namely, is the investment of money? Uh, is there an extra reasonable expectation of profits from the investment? Is the investment of money in a common enterprise? And, and the, do such profits, uh, are they derived from the promoter or a third party? What's interesting is the term common enterprise isn't uh, precisely defined, but courts themselves have used different interpretations. Um, so that's been somewhat stifling in the in, in terms of the ICO market and the SEC taking a look at, at different things. But, but what was particularly of interest, I think, to your question about, okay, what's this mean for treatment is you've got something that initially itself could have been a security at its inception. Uh, upon its initial offering, it would have been treated as a security subject to securities laws and regulations but for the fact that it becomes sufficiently decentralized, uh, meaning that they're administered uh, by various parties um, and that the, that the protocol itself allows for decentralization uh, as compared to being uh, a more centralized model. Once it's achieved sufficient decentralization, it would be treated as a commodity, being mm. that, that uh, distinction. That's really, really interesting. And so Bitcoin is treated differently than Ethereum because it's not as decentralized? or Yeah, let me clarify, actually. So Bitcoin and Ethereum would now be both sufficiently decentralized mm. and be treated as commodities. But something in its earlier stage, let's say you and I were to partner and then uh, combine our efforts to, to issue this token to uh, prospective investors that would acquire that token. And, and if that token were to be more widely held, that would be considered generally a security. But once the nodes, once there are, there are, are nodes and miners there's, that they achieve sufficient decentralization, um, it would no longer be treated as a security for purposes of, of federal laws and regulations. It would be more viewed as a commodity. But what's interesting is there's no bright line rule to this. These are just the perspectives of different regulatory bodies. So it, watching this space evolve is certainly going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it feels like cryptocurrency is is the future and you know obviously the, hopefully the dollar and will always be there and other country currencies but i i it does make sense to me that you can just hold this thing and it's it's a, a store of value and easy to use and it's it seems so it seems like where the world's going and i was reading fred wilson was talking the other day on his blog that we're following kind of the the nasdaq 1999 crash and recovery and kind of uh, the Gartner hype cycle where we're in the, the trough where no one believes anymore, generally speaking. And then this is this is where cool things start getting built. And the people who are really paying attention hop on it early and then they benefit five years from now or 10 years from now. 
Yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got this segregation of groups that are supporters, strong, firm supporters of Bitcoin. They call themselves and hold themselves out to be Bitcoin maximalists. Then you've got other groups that are more interested in what so-called altcoins or alternative coins and alternative currencies. Um, and they they hold that there's going to be a, a competition and that one coin will ultimately trump uh, Bitcoin. So, so it's going to be certainly interesting to see how this all shapes out. I love it. I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for coming by. Can you give everyone just a reminder what the Gallatin Group does and where they can find you? Absolutely. You can find the Gallatin Group online at www.thegallatin.com. Uh, the Gallatin Group is an advisory firm focused on financial services regulation. We specialize in working on fin- working with fintechs, banks, and investment companies on regulatory and transactional matters. And we leverage our network of former financial regulators and experts to work on a variety of applications for state and federal banking regulators. We also advise on bank fintech partnerships, product development, and strategy. Love it, John. Thank you. You've been a great guest. Really appreciate it. And also a shout out to Rippling Startup Payroll. They do payroll. They do HR. They integrate in your IT stack to make onboarding new employees real easy. Thank you, Rippling. And thank you, John, for coming by. This is awesome. Thank you. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Scotty.